Just this past summer, our daughter Jenna traveled to Europe, where she visited London and Paris and Thessalonica and a few other places. And while she was there, she sent me this postcard. Uh, postcards are awesome. They're awesome. They're fun to receive, aren't they? Uh, they're usually colorful, often artistic, maybe contain a great photograph. Um, they're informative. You get to know the whereabouts of the traveler. They're short, so they don't take long to either compose or to read. They're inexpensive to mail, and uh, they're easy to store. You can keep them as a bookmark, maybe uh, stick them in your Bible. I keep mine in my journal, stick them on the uh, on the refrigerator. And they make great framed photographs for cheap. They also remind you of a bigger story. Uh, your love for the sender, maybe uh, an awareness of another part of the world, um, shared experiences that you have in your museum of memories. Postcards are awesome. Well, today we're launching a brand new series of messages that we've titled Old Testament Postcards. Each week we're going to hear from a different colorful Old Testament character. You see, the Bible is an inspired collection of real-life stories of unique but otherwise very ordinary everyday people who serve an extraordinary God. We'll catch glimpses of the kinds of people that God actually uses. And it's one of the things I just love about the Bible is that it's so real. There's nothing painted or perfumed or photoshopped out in the Bible. It's uh, real life, down, dirty, gritty. You get the real deal when you read the Bible. And it often just offers those stories without commentary or explanation, and they're left to the mystery of the reader to figure out. But these stories in the next seven weeks will help us shed any unbiblical suppositions we have about the kind of people that God uses. Uh, they They don't glow. They don't have halos. Real life, real people. We could maybe even subtitle this series, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. Our goals over the next seven weeks, I have two. First, to be informed and encouraged. Uh, Hopefully these messages will build a bridge from the world of the Bible into the world that we live today and will actually be encouraged as a result. Uh, We want to see where these people fit in the bigger story. And then our second goal is to be challenged and changed. That, that there'll be a point to the story. We want to apply some of the life lessons that we're learning to where we live today. And uh, it is going to be neat. We'll have uh, the privilege of having a few of our own as guest speakers in the next few weeks. Let's pray together. Lord, we're humbled at the start of a brand new day for life and breath and soundness of mind. We thank you that every good and perfect gift that comes from above is from you, the Father of lights. And we pray the prayer this morning, Lord, that you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. In our lives, in our family, in our church family, in this auditorium right next door, Lord, where the Vineyard Kids are celebrating life in you as well. We want to be people whose lives count for you. And so today, would you come by the power of your Holy Spirit and anoint your word in our worship to our lives in your name. Amen. Well, the story of Noah is found in the very first book of the Bible. If you'd like to open there, it's the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at chapters 6 to 9 this morning. This is arguably the most dramatic and most memorable story in all of the Bible. 
I also understand that this story is perhaps one of the most highly contested in the entire Bible. For, for generations now, scholars and scientists and skeptics have debunked these chapters, the account of a worldwide flood, as folklore and legend. And right at the outset, I just want to go on record and say, inasmuch as I have some real questions about the details that are left unrecorded, that we embrace the story of Noah as factual. Even Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, the 24th chapter, acknowledged that there was a flood and indicated the time of his second coming would be like the days of Noah. So I kind of feel like if you believe this story, you're in good company. You're right there with Jesus. I also want to conclude that through uh, history, uh, the the church, that uh, especially the children's departments, have sanitized the story almost beyond recognition, quite honestly. It's really a tragic description of God's judgment on the whole world. And most of the recollections we have have been painted and perfumed uh, beyond the, 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 the real story, the flannel graph, if you're old enough to remember what those were, the flannel graph pictures would, would not be nearly so cute as what this story actually records. And in the church, we've actually rewritten the story as we wanted it to be, not as it actually was. So God give us mercy. Noah's story actually begins in Genesis 5.32, where we read, by the time Noah was 500 years old, he was the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, man, having kids in your 20s, your 30s, even your 40s is a a challenge. Can you imagine having them at 500? (laughs) Interestingly, we get no insight into the first 500 years of Noah's life. Did you ever feel like that God drew a curtain over part of your life? That, That for some season of time you felt perhaps insignificant? that that God wasn't using you or maybe didn't even know about you or had forgotten you or that you were overlooked. I think, frankly, that many of God's ordinary children feel this way, the way that perhaps Noah felt uh, for, for much of their lives. You know, here's a man who spent 500 years doing, well, nothing so special or ordinary, uh, unordinary that, that the Holy Spirit chose to record it. It is recorded in God's books, the books that will actually be opened on the judgment day. You can read about those in Revelation, the 20th chapter. But this feature is what I call time compression in the Bible. Uh, One verse or even the space between verses can represent a period of maybe uh, an entire lifetime, several generations, or in this case, 500 years. Well, let's read uh, Genesis chapter 6 now, verses 5 to 7 and verse 11. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe the human race that I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing. All the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky, I'm sorry I ever made them. Verse 11, and now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on the earth was corrupt. Now, it's helpful to remember that 
after the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that whose story is recorded actually in, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that now there's a, a, a great span of time that has elapsed. If you were to literally interpret the genealogy recorded in Genesis 5, there, there would be a minimum of about 1,656 years. You add up all the, 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 the years listed there. But other scholars doubt that the genealogical framework listed in Genesis 5 can actually be used to calculate an exact number of years, but was rather abbreviated for shortness and for symmetry in the writing. And so that would just mean to indicate that the length of time was actually much longer. But we do know that 10 generations had passed, and they had come and gone. And in this time, the curse that God placed on the earth, recorded in Genesis 3, uh, had begun to work its way into the fabric of everyday ordinary life. Uh, in Genesis 3, the, the curse first exploded when Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, murdered his brother Abel in a fit of jealous rage. And after that, like mildew, on a damp, dark basement wall, the curse began to grow and creep and spread everywhere, working its way and wrecking its havoc of sickness and suffering and jealousy and infidelity and polygamy and idolatry and oppression of every kind worked its way through all the known world. Until, as we read, everything that man thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And in the words of the writer, the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. Now, sadly, the text concludes, as we read, that the Lord was sorry that he ever made man. It broke his heart. People ask, maybe you've asked, why did God make man if he knew in in his foreknowledge that Adam and Eve would sin? Like, what's the deal? Well, some would argue that God limits his foreknowledge And in this sense, he surrendered the right to know what Adam and Eve would have done in the test. It was a real test. God was watching and learning. You see, in some cases, God doesn't know everything. Uh, Jesus, as the Son of God, does not know when he's coming back, Matthew 25. But I just like to think in response to the question, is there any other way that God could have made them? Could could there be a moral creature that has capacity uh, to choose? Not not does not have the capacity to choose. It, like could God have made us any other way? Freedom is His gift to us. Freedom to choose to love. Freedom to choose to to hate. Freedom to choose uh, to follow. Freedom to choose to disobey. What virtue is there in obeying God if you are pre-programmed from the start with no other capacity? if we are uh, not inclined any other way than to just fully obey? What if we are computers pre-programmed from the get-go to always love God? What what glory or virtue or, or praise is there in that? What good does that do? I say nothing. And so freedom is God's great gift. Thank God for freedom. But freedom is also a very dangerous gift because as we saw in the story of Adam, he exercised the capacity to disobey. And it broke God's heart. And when we do, God is saddened. God is moved, though, at the plight of ordinary, everyday people. And if we don't turn from sin and selfishness, which is God's continual invitation, turn from sin and self-centered living, 
When we don't turn, it breaks the heart of God yet today. But such is the backdrop of the life of Noah. Now, his name means rest or bringing relief. Perhaps his parents' uh, hearts were aching for relief from the avalanche of evil around them. Uh, And maybe his parents named him rest in the earnest hope that actually something might change. That God's promised redemption back generations ago in the Garden of Eden, where God said there's coming a redeemer, that maybe that would actually break in, that maybe this would be the generation that their son would lead the charge or be a part of the charge to experience the hand of the extraordinary God, bringing freedom and change on the earth. And as it turns out, Noah's name proved prophetic, which is a postscript to those of us that are parents that have the possibility of naming our children. Be careful what you name your kids. And, and really, the day and age sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? You know, we, we're ordinary people living in a world that's saturated by sin. God's heart is broken at the choices that we make as individuals, as well as the systems and institutions, choices of oppression and, and uh, injustice. It breaks the heart of God yet today, and we are awaiting the inbreaking of his restoration, the setting of things to right. Well, we pick up the story in Genesis 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. The text says that Noah was regarded as a righteous man, described as blameless among his contemporaries. And the reason, as one translation of this particular verse reads, he consistently followed God's will and enjoyed a close relationship with him. A number of other translations read that Noah walked with God. I I kind of thought, you know, man, I wish if God had ever wrote another book and my name was listed in it, that that's what would be said of me. No doubt you, you would maybe want the same thing. Noah, an ordinary, everyday person, made the deliberate and conscious daily decision for 500 years to walk with God. And other than that, we know nothing of those first five centuries. But I like to think that what distinguished Noah from his contemporaries wasn't the outward trappings of his clothing, that wasn't the kind of tent he lived in, the kind of donkey he rode or camel, what variety, it wasn't the church he was a part of. He wore linen underwear just like everybody else. He, he ate vegetables, nuts, and fruits just like everybody else. But what set him apart was the inclination of his heart towards God. He walked with God. Then we read in verse 8 that Noah found favor with the Lord. That's a shining bright spot in this story. An ordinary man receives favor, otherwise translated in the Bible as grace, from God, from an extraordinary God. And I don't think it was just coincidence You know, God's extraordinary favor comes to ordinary people who consistently follow God's will and enjoy a close relationship with him, like Noah did. And when you see the life of a person upon whom God's favor rests, know that it's not just because they're living a charmed life. No, not at all. There's usually an unseen story behind the curtain, a man or a woman who walks with God. Now, this is not to deny 
God's sovereignty as we've experienced it, as we see it in church history and read in the Bible. That is to say, bad stuff happens to good and righteous people with no explanation. People who walk with God suffer. And it's also to say that blessings fall on the wicked and the ungodly. No explanation. You cannot earn the favor or the grace of God. But generally speaking, the Bible does show that we reap what we sow and that God's favor and blessing comes to those who walk in obedience to the living God. Now, God speaks to Noah, verse 13. God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures, for they fill the earth with violence. Yes, I'll wipe them all out, out, out all along with the earth. I'm kind of wondering, how did he say that to Noah? Was it perhaps an audible voice? Was it an inward witness? Did he send a messenger? Did an animal talk? You know, what? I suspect that it was an audible voice. Uh, and I think you probably recognize it as God because you recognize the voice of people you walk closely with, right? I mean, when Tina calls on the cell phone, other than the fact that I have caller ID, she doesn't have to say, hello, Ben, this is Tina, your wife. And as the way it is with you, with friends and family, right? You recognize the voice of someone you walk with. Well, he'd been walking with God for 500 years. And so when, when God said, I, uh, I'm going to wipe everybody out, he, he didn't go, oh, you know, he just, he recognized it as, the, well, he maybe did that, but uh, he recognized it as the voice of God. I think he probably went, oh, the next part too. Verse 14, build a boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out, and then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior, make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on the earth will die, but I'll confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you, your wife, your sons, and their wives. Now, the specific proviso here uh, beyond the building of the boat is that Noah and his family will be spared. And here, for the first time, we are introduced to the sweeping biblical theme of God preserving a remnant for himself. And this, this will continue to, to unfold through the rest of history until the kingdom is consummated at Jesus' return someday. And then God adds this particular peculiar set of instructions in verses 19 to 21. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal, every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground, you'll come, uh, uh, will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. Now, today we kind of, you know, particularly if we're familiar with the story, we read it and we kind of go, huh, yeah. But can we just dial back for a moment and put ourselves into the story not not having like the rest of the story to read and already know how it's going to end up. Babylonian tradition tells us that Noah's home was at Farah, and it's along the Euphrates River, 
And so boat building and river trafficking would have been familiar to him. This wasn't like an other ordinary like request. But and this was some honking big boat. Mind you that up until the year 1850 AD, there, there is no record of any ship in the world being this large. And flood? I mean, what was that? Now, it had rained before, and there had been a heavy dew, but there was no such thing as a flood. And how are you going to get those animals to cooperate? I mean, you know, have you ever tried herding cats? Can you imagine one of every kind of animal on the face of the earth? I mean, that would have been a literally overwhelming. Like, Lord, how am I even going to like do that? And then gather enough food. And for how long? So, you know, you kind of start, and when you peel the layers of familiarity and sanitizing off the story, you begin to think like, wow, this, this is like really a, an incredible story. And just how long did, did God expect to allow Noah to live? Because he's thinking, this is a colossal task. That's a big boat. That's a lot of animals. This could take me decades, Lord, to actually do this. Yeah, it did. And, and you know, it, it makes me pause to think, Noah gave the better part of his life to obeying a specific task that God gave him to do. What have we given our lives to do? What is it that occupies the the thrust of our love and our affection and our time and our energy and our money? Has God spoken to you about your life's work or the next chapter of your life's work? Those spheres of influence and where you work and where you live and what you're to do, with, with what, what he's challenging you for. And what is that? And how's it to unfold? Noah's long obedience in the right direction, to use the words of author Eugene Peterson, stand as a challenge to all of us to devote our lives to the will of God. Now, if Noah was a city king, as Babylonian tradition tells us, he likely could have employed hundreds or thousands of workers in the ark's construction. It's almost a a stretch to think that he and his three sons did it themselves. The task was so large. But it still took nearly 100 years to build the boat. Can you imagine the the intolerable uh, suffering, ridicule, and abuse that he would have taken? You're building a what? For what? Because there's coming a a what? What's a flood? And just every day for a hundred years, obeying God's vision for his life opened him up to the possibility of being misunderstood, being accused of craziness, saying you belong to a cult over there called the vineyard or whatever. You know, obeying God opens you up to the potential for being labeled nuts. Some of you have felt that from your co-workers, your family, your extended family, people who do not understand what it is you, you are engaged. Well, we, we begin to see right here in the, in the blueprint of, of, of this story that, that programmatic in the rest of the unfolding of the kingdom is this potential for ridicule and misunderstanding if we uh, obey the will of God. But I find it compelling that Noah, that God did not ask Noah to do something that was impossible. He simply said, build a boat. Difficult, but not impossible. And as I thought about it this week, it's one of the gems of this story. 
God seldom asks his people to ever do something impossible. He asks them, ordinary people, to do possible things. And then the extraordinary God does the impossible. So we've got to keep the division of labor intact where it's supposed to belong. We, the ordinary people, do the possible. God, the extraordinary, does the impossible. We offer to pray for a sick neighbor. God does the healing. We invite a co-worker to coffee. That's quite possible. We, we give our car uh, or our van to a family in need. You fast from food for a day and pray for a certain situation. You help the poor or the unborn or the handicapped or the orphaned in a sacrificial way. You serve in Vineyard Kids as a leader for a quarter or a year. You start or host a small group. You join with other uh, family members or uh, your small group and reach out to those beyond uh, our borders, as, as Melissa encouraged us earlier today. You um, forgive someone. You host a holiday party for your classmates or your office mates or your neighbors. You go back to school. You change jobs. You reorient your entire life in a season of obedience. Or maybe you you leave your job and stay home at God's instruction. Maybe you go with a team on a church plant or a mission trip. You begin to, to make a change by starting every day reading the Bible and praying. You stop that besetting sin by saying no to ungodliness and putting on the new man or the new woman. You pay your bills on time. You keep your promises. You don't discipline your children in anger. You treat your husband or your wife with respect and honor. You don't take a longer break at work than your boss pays you for. These are all things that are quite possible. Difficult and challenging to be sure. You do the possible. The extraordinary God does the impossible. He does not ask you, friends, to do impossible things. He asks ordinary people to do things that are possible. Now, here's the hiccup. It requires faith. You have to trust God. A willingness to obey Him. A willingness to trust Him. Because, Lord, you said it, I will obey. I have no outward evidence or empirical, uh, objective, measurable evidence that it's going to work or that, that, that'll be successful. But I choose to trust you. You said it, and I'm, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to trust you. I love uh, the Holy Spirit inspired commentary on, on Noah's life in chapter six, verse 22. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Chapter seven, verse five, the refrain repeats. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. Isn't that good? Stands as a compelling uh, illustration. Each one of us has the same capacity as Noah to trust and obey God. He was no different than you and me, made up of the same stuff. We have the same capacity. I mean, think about it. He could have told God no, couldn't he? He says, no, I... I Lord, I'm 500 years old. I just don't think I'm up to this task. You know, I've kind of logged my time. It's about retirement. Uh, he could have quit any time during the process. I mean, a hundred years is a long time to build a boat. You know, he, how many times do you think he began to doubt that there ever was going to be a flood coming on his way to work? Lord, I just don't take, I just know if I can take one more day. How many of us maybe have said that same thing on the way to our, our work or, you know, in, in the home? 
Maybe he thought to himself, I just don't see any evidence of the Lord fulfilling his promise to me. I mean, I've been at this thing 10 years, 25 years, 50 years. Doesn't feel like we're any closer to seeing this thing fulfilled than when we started. How many times maybe Noah wrestled with, did God really say that? Like, was that really the Lord that I heard? I mean, I know I heard it, but what, was it really him? And, and, and many of us that have followed Christ have, have been riddled with doubt in, in that way at times. We, we've wrestled with, with that. But ordinary Noah did everything exactly as God commanded. And this then set up the extraordinary God to begin to move. And he brought the flood and Noah's deliverance. So now the extraordinary God goes to work. In Genesis 7, 9, uh, the, the text tells us that the animals enter the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. Now only God could make that happen, to speak a word to animals all over the globe and for those animals to, to come. And, and, and I mean, how did that happen? We don't know. And then the text tells us in verse 11 that the underground waters burst upon the earth and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky for 40 days and 40 nights, that the water rose to a height of 22 feet above the highest mountain peak. And then the ark floated safely on top of the water. Now, can we possibly imagine what life would have been like inside the ark? It was not a carnival cruise to the Bahamas, trust me. Thrilling and exciting and terrifying and sleepless and seasick and smelly and awesome, all mixed together at the same time. But the ark typifies Christ. And as Noah and his family were spared judgment by riding safely on top of the water in the ark, so all who are in Christ will be spared judgment. God desires for you and your entire family, even those that are now outside the reach of the, of the church and the gospel. He desires for them to be safely in the ark. That's what the picture typifies. And know that when you're invited into the ark, friends, your journey in Christ is going to be thrilling and exciting and terrifying and sleepless and seasick and smelly and awesome, all mixed together. That is life in the kingdom. Now, the postscript to the flood is found in chapter 7, verse 21. All things living uh, on the earth die. Birds, and domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on the earth, uh, on dry land, died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth. People, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, birds of the sky, all were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. And the floodwaters cover the earth for 150 days. Now, there is considerable debate among scientists and scholars today about the, uh, uh, the extent of the flood. You know, was it limited in geographic scope to the, to the known world at the time? Or was it worldwide? Did it cover the entire globe? No one knows. I do think that it's interesting as a matter of public record that almost every civilization uh, since the dawn of time uh, has a tradition of a great deluge that covered the earth that was survived by one man and a family. Almost every tradition. I like what Henry Halley writes in his handbook where he says, all of these myths are intelligible only on the presupposition that some such event actually did occur. 
such a universal belief must be based on historical fact. But this is judgment of, I believe, a worldwide scope. Everything and everyone died. And of course, it looks forward to the day when every person will stand before the throne of God and be judged according to their deeds. Now, the eighth chapter shows us that the flood stopped, the rain stopped, the underground water sources ceased their, their gushing, the ark floated for another three months, came to rest on the top of Mount Ararat, which is about 500 miles from where it had started. And there it rested for another seven months as the earth dried out, And then Noah and his family left the boat. The animals and birds came out pair by pair. And we read in in chapter 8, verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed burnt offerings, the animals and birds that had been approved for such a purpose. So there was, even now, a primitive revelation of sacrifice and what kind of animals were acceptable and not to to, to the Lord. But here was an ordinary man who had experienced the favor of an extraordinary God, and the very first thing that he did was worship. That is a powerful story. I I want to put that lesson into practice in my life. When God's power and God's kingdom move in my life, I want my response to be, first and foremost, thankfulness and gratitude through worship. Now, the postscript is that Noah lived actually another 350 years after the flood. All the known races descended from his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. How does that happen? How do you get racial and ethnic diversity from three people? I have no idea. Neither do you. It's just one of those mysteries in the Bible. And then God gives his assurance of never sending another flood in judgment that's accompanied by the sign of the rainbow. And every time you see the day, the rainbow, it stands as a pledge that God will preserve the world until his redemptive purposes are complete at the second coming of Christ. That's the sign. And then one last thing we read in, in, in the postscript is recorded in chapter 9, verse 20. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground and he planted a vineyard. One day he became, he drank wine, drank some wine that he had made and he became drunk and lay naked in his tent. Now, I'm actually really encouraged by this addition to the story. (laughs) Because it shows Noah's utter ordinariness. It doesn't hide his faults and his, his issues. You know, God moved incredibly powerfully, and yet he yielded to temptation and sin. Just because God moves powerfully doesn't mean everything in your life automatically changes forever. In fact, some things it feels like never change. You know, I've been a Christ follower for 38 years now, and you'd think I would know better, but I am still screwing up every week, as are you. And we can take great encouragement from the life of Noah, that such is life in the kingdom. It gives me great hope because God's ordinary people aren't perfect. They're not even saintly. They're just ordinary, and their lives are filled with victory and defeat, uh, joy and and sorrow, uh, sobriety and drunkenness, all mixed together in the kingdom of God. Now, when Noah woke up from his hangover, he cursed his son Ham and blessed Shem and Japheth. 
Now, personally, I think it reveals that as a parent, he had favorites, which is horrible because parents aren't supposed to have favorites. But his words were powerful and prophetic, and he spoke the future into existence. Canaan goes on to be the father of the people that rebel against God, the Canaanites, and are later judged. And Noah blessed his other two sons, the line of Shem, and uh, and and uh, the Shemites, the Semitic people, are the line from which the Redeemer, the Messiah, would eventually come. From among them came the child of promise that God said would happen in Genesis chapter 3. But that's a sobering message to those of us who are parents about the words of cursing or blessing that we speak out over our family. And when we as ordinary people speak blessing or cursing into our children's lives, God can do extraordinary things. Well, I want to wrap up this uh, uh, talk this morning, this postcard, by saying uh, the story on on one hand, makes me very sad. Sad because the entire world, with the exception of eight people, broke the heart of God and received his judgment. It makes me actually very glad because I have great hope that as an ordinary person, God doesn't ask me or you to do extraordinary things. He asked me to do ordinary things. And the invitation is that as we cooperate and trust with uh, trust him, that God, the extraordinary God, will do the impossible. We do the possible, he does the impossible. And I'm, I'm very encouraged to know that our lives, like Noah, can propel the redemptive story of God's activity in the world forward. That each one of us, as we lean into God's will and discover his destiny for our lives, we play a significant role in the unfolding of God's larger story of redemption in the world today. Lord, thank you for the, the challenging and encouraging message from, from the life of Noah. We're, we're humbled, Lord, that, that you even invite us in at, at this level. And, and God, would you just take the lessons that we're learning and, and, and work them into our life? Would you, would you encourage and challenge us to, to be more fully devoted in the ways that, that this story is speaking to each one of us? We discover the part that we play, put power on our lives for that to happen. And, and now, Lord, as we offer our lives back to you in giving of our gifts and in worship, receive them for what they are, tokens that we love you in your name. Amen.